I remember the very first time I ever time traveled. Maybe you remember your first time too. I was 12 years old. I left dystopian future to return to the 1980s in all of their glory. Michael Jackson was alive and black. Ronald Reagan was alive and president. Millie Vanilli were alive and everybody thought they could sing. <laughs> Men were wearing jean jackets with pastel shirts underneath as if that was even a thing. Women had the biggest feathered hair they can make with the Aquanet. And cool kids were taking Datsun trucks because they were still called Datsun and not Nissan back then and lowered them all the way to the ground. Now I arrived in a flash of light that was so bright and so hot that I left a rounded crater at my feet and apparently burned off all my clothes because I was naked. I looked across the street and I saw the Goodwill. And see, the Goodwill in the 1980s is just like they are today. You wait till your yard sale is over, and then you pack all your stuff up. You wait till you know the Goodwill is closed so they can't say no. You drive out back and you dump it all behind the place and drive off. So I ran across the street and I grabbed some clothes. I borrowed them and I got dressed. Now, not soon after I arrived in 1980, another person arrived, and he was ginormous. He also looked a whole lot like an angry Arnold Schwarzenegger, and it turns out he was looking for me. Now, time travel, these time experience, is an odd thing because nothing seems to come together just right. History, as we know it, becomes fluid, and up becomes down, and right becomes left. You can never really be sure what's going on. For instance, I knew I was a boy, but somehow like a quantum leap gone bad, I ended up being a girl. I knew this because a gigantic angry man started asking people, do you know Sarah Connor? And I knew he was looking for me. So I sneaked through some back streets. I hijacked a semi, even though I couldn't even drive at the time. I ran through a police station. I stowed away in the back of a double-wide trailer, all trying to get away. But eventually, you can't get away from a T-800. And he caught me. Poor, defenseless Sarah Connor. And right before he put his hand through my face, it, all his skin melted off, and it was just this skeleton of steel. I, <gasps> I sat up in bed because the return trip to your current time is a lot quicker than actually going back in time. And as far as I know, that's one of only four ways to time travel, and that is to have an imagination. When we speak of four-letter words, no one ever really thinks about time as this four-letter word. Yet it's a word that's completely unexplainable. It's ununderstandable. Yet time is the basis for everything we know. It's the basis for how all of our lives are ordered. Our cars are governed by the amount of time and how often you change the fluids. Or you change cars if you don't change the fluids. Our work is governed by how much time you spend there, how long you go in, and then when you leave. Our relationships are governed by how much time we spend or don't spend with those that we love or don't love. Our days are numbered by the amount of time that we get. Even the light bulbs in our homes, when you buy them, they have a label that says how many hours they're going to work. I mean, have you ever thought about time and, and time travel? Of course you have. We all have. Whether it's a horrible future filled with machines that want to kill you or just you know you going to be able to do something different in time. And if you could do anything in time, that you, what would you want to do? And would you go back in time to maybe see your parents meeting? That might give you nightmares. You know? I mean, if I did, I wonder if they'd warn them about me. Maybe warn them about each other. <laughs> hey. Everybody seems to want to meet themselves and erase embarrassing memories, see a concert of some long, broken-up band, buy Google, Microsoft, Apple stock, tell themselves what things to avoid. But the decisions in your life that you've made make you you. I mean, what if you could go back and stop yourself from ever having any broken hearts? Would you still be you? Think about that. What if you never ate ice cream or found the pleasure of cookies? Would you still be you? Time and trying to change things is a scary proposition when you think about it because time itself, it's unwieldy, it's untamable, it's unchangeable. It's like a vast ocean we can never contain or control. 
And the more we study it, the less we seem to know about it. It's, like, it's why ads like this picture right here wanted somebody to go back in time with me. This is not a joke. You'll get paid after we get back. Must bring your own weapons. Safety not guaranteed. I've only done this once before. Seems like you would change that haircut. Maybe if that were true. I mean, we laugh. No, that can't really be true. As I said, imagination is one of four ways I know of for time travel. The second is to have an infinite amount of gravity at your disposal. If you want to advance through the years a little faster than the next person, you have to exploit what's called space-time. Now, GPS satellites pull this off every day. They accrue an extra billionth of a second every day they're in orbit. Time passes faster in orbit because satellites are further away from the mass of the Earth. Down here on the surface of the Earth, the planet's mass drags on time. It slows it down. We call this gravitational time dilation. According to Einstein's general theory, uh, theory of general relativity, gravity is a curve in space-time, and astronomers regularly observe this phenomenon when they study light when it moves past a sufficiently massive object, like a sun. They'll actually see light begin to bend around that sun. They call this the gravitational lensing effect. Any event that occurs in the universe has to involve both space and time. And gravity just doesn't pull on space, it also pulls on time. Now, the third way for time travel is speed and an infinite amount of energy. Speed plays a role in how we experience time. Time passes more slowly the closer you approach the speed of light, the faster that you go. For instance, if you put a clock in a speeding train, the hands of that clock on that speeding train will move more slowly than a clock that's just left back at, say, the train station. Now, you and I, we don't really notice it so much because it's only billions of a second. But if you could take that speeding train and get it to like 99.99% the speed of light, well, all of a sudden, that clock on that train would only experience one year for every 223 years back at the train station. Now, the Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years wide. So light from its more distant stars can take thousands upon thousands of years to reach the Earth. Which means every time you walk out on a night and you can see the stars, you're actually looking back in time. And so some scientists have proposed the idea that using faster-than-light travel, we could journey backwards in time. Because if the closer you approach the speed of light, then if you exceed it, well, maybe then you could go back in time. But there's a problem. As an object approaches the speed of light, its mass increases until at the speed of light it becomes infinite. And accelerating an infinite mass faster than the speed of light is simply impossible. I mean, just think about you trying to get off the couch and accelerate your mass to, say, 15 miles an hour. It's like near impossible, I know. And so this is where Star Trek comes in. And you get warp speed technology. And so what they do is they warp space around an object, like the Enterprise or Captain Kirk, and you propel that space bubble across the universe. Except it takes unimaginable power to create this warp bubble. So you have imagination, gravity, speed with an infinite amount of energy. And the fourth reality is that we're all engaged in time travel. All of us. You will make it to the future. Now. 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 Welcome. You're here. You made it. Is it all you thought it would be? You're like, no, you're still talking. Okay, I got it. For us, it's a question of how fast that trip is actually going to be. If we look at how we portray Santa, he's got to use all these things to make it to every single kid's house in a single night. Imagination to figure out the route, gravity to land the reindeer, sufficient time dilation to get it done, speed in which to get it done. Then he progresses into the future to see everyone open their gifts. At its most basic level, time is the rate of change in the universe. And like it or not, we are constantly undergoing change. Planets move around the sun. We age. Things fall apart. We fall apart. We don't really like it that much. But we measure the passage of time in seconds, minutes, hours, and years. 
But that doesn't mean that time flows at a constant rate. It all depends on speed and gravity and energy. Now, when you look at the vastness of the universe and how large it is, the, the incomprehensible magnitude of it all, and that there seem to be these laws that govern these things, it has led many people to the belief that there is a creator. And a being who could create all of this must be too vast for our comprehension in our finite minds, so high above us that they're essentially unable to be known. German theologian Rudolf Otto in 1970 coined this term that God is wholly other, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's completely different than us. Karl Barth takes this and runs with for the most of the 20th century, that God is wholly other than man. He's so different. He is so far out that he is other. Even the ways the scriptures talk about God sometimes seem like this. Very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That seems like an understatement. Doesn't it? Really? Every, one, okay, there it is. I mean, we know that the cause of all things must be supernatural. He must be outside the laws of nature. He must be uncaused because he caused everything else. And there cannot be an infinite regression of causes. And he must be timeless because he creates time. Heaven and earth in the Hebrew are preceded here by what's called a definite article, the heavens and the earth. It's, it's just what's known as a mirrorism, a combination of opposites, heaven and earth. In Hebrew, there's no word for cosmos. So the closest it gets is to saying the heavens and the earth. Nehemiah 9.6 says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it. Jeremiah 10 verse 12 says, but God made the earth by his power and founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. I mean, how do we even know that? Because God, this creator, revealed himself to us in a way that we can understand that he made these things. He spoke in a way that we would know he was the creator. Isaiah 44, verse 24, I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Isaiah 45, verse 12, my own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I love Genesis 1, 16, because it talks about God creating the sun and the moon. And then like a casual add-on, it says, and the stars. I mean, the universe is a hundred billion light years across. And Genesis 1.16 just says, and the stars. It's kind of interesting. And you have the picture of the infiniteness of this universe we reside in, and yet a God who can stretch out his hands and encompass all of it. It caused C.S. Lewis to write this, God is both further from us and nearer to us than any other being. He makes, we are made. He is original, we are derivative. But at the same time and for the same reason, the intimacy between God and even the meanest creature is closer than that creature can attain with one another. See, we live in times that comes down to moments, moments, moments. It's all relationship between time and space. Now, human beings live in three spatial dimensions, length, width, and depth. Time then joins that party as the crucial fourth dimension. But time can't exist without space, and space can't exist without time. The two exist as one. We actually call this the space-time continuum. For all you sci-fi geeks, there you go. Any event that occurs in the universe has to involve both space and time, unless you are the one who created time and space and matter, and it sits under your watchful care. What's really interesting is this God who made everything didn't just reveal himself and say, hey, look what I made, be impressed. That's not what he did. He starts to reveal so much more. 
In the book of Exodus, God sees this people who are in bondage to slavery. And he determines that he is going to set them free. He's going to redeem them from this slavery. So he takes a man named Moses and says, I want you to go to these people. In Exodus 3, 13 and 14, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? What's God's answer? Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God just named himself. Now, up until this moment, everybody just called God, God. Now God actually gives himself a name. Naming has great importance in the scriptures. The name I am is based on four Hebrew constants, Y-H-W-H. We say Yahweh. And it literally means to be, that God is, period. This divine name has so many nuances to it. It means that God is self-existent, and therefore he is not dependent on anything or anyone for his existence. That God is the creator and the sustainer of all that exists, including time and space and matter. That God is unchanging in his being and character. He's not in the process of becoming something different than who or what he is, that God is eternal in his existence. That word translated I am can also be understood as I will be or I always have been or I always will be. I mean, God creates and places us in this tri-universe of space, time, and matter. Again, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth matter. And this creator then, put us in a tri-universe, reveals himself eventually as a triune God. And what does this God do who can do anything? He makes people. He makes people. Why? Not because he lacks anything in himself or his character, but because God's concerned about glory. You know, the word glory, it means weight. It means significance. It means gravity. That everything God does has gravity to it. And God loves to create, to see his creation grow, to understand that gravity. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 5, it speaks of God creating mankind, and it says, You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God bestows his gravity, his glory on man. How does he do that? Well, God takes a portion of his vast creation, and he puts it under the man's stewardship and responsibility. But all of creation is tied together. So what happens with this man in this one section of this medium-sized galaxy has ramifications for the rest of the universe, for all of time and space and matter. And what does man do with all that God has given him, all these good gifts? He crushes it. He destroys relationship with God. He breaks relationship with his wife next to him. He breaks relationship with creation. We, in the church, we call this this word sin. And everything from that moment, from that breaking, experiences chaos, time and space and matter all experience chaos. Romans 8.22 says we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, happy you are men in this room, and so you've never experienced childbirth, but if you ask a woman, they will tell you stories that rival any war story. It was 36 hours of labor, and then they cut me open. I mean, it's like, wow, okay. It's crazy. What does this God do who has revealed himself as a personal loving father? What does he do when his children sin and rebel and break relationship with him, when they destroy everything he made? He makes a promise. Not that he will just rescue his kids, but that he will rescue all of his creation. In Romans 8, 19 to 21, it says, The creation is waiting in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed and hope the creation itself be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. How is God going to bring all time and space and matter back together again? How is he going to bring freedom again? Well, it starts with the word. That word is Christmas. 
That's how it starts. We are told in Isaiah and reminded in Matthew that the virgin will be with the child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God determines to save us by coming himself into human flesh to rescue us. Not because we are so good, but because he is that good. I mean, think about this God who could have done anything he wanted to do, remained aloof, never revealed himself to us. He could have scrapped this universe and started over. We would have never even have known. He could have. But instead, this God that creates galaxies and stars and universes by a word, time by a word, comes into flesh to redeem and rescue his creation. Now, when stars collapse in on themselves and gravity turns inward, eventually you will get a black hole. When a gigantic star becomes the size of a VW bug, the gravitational forces are so immense that light cannot even escape. Now, think about this. What would it be like for a being who stands above and beyond the universe, who can stretch out his hands and encompass the entire thing, for him to put himself in something the size of a baby born in a manger? Wouldn't the gravitational forces just be off the charts? Of course they would. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Wouldn't all of time and space and matter warp around this event and this incident? Of course. And that's exactly what happened. The world has been warped around the life of this baby who grew into a man and died to pay for the sin that separated us from himself. All history is pulled forward to this event. All history looks back to that singularity. This event has changed the course of cosmic history. The arms that stretched across the universe and laid it out became flesh and bone arms that touched and healed and stretched out again on a cross to save us from ourselves. Jesus is the most followed, most admired, most sung about, most painted, most sculpted, most recognizable figure in human history. And we don't even have a description of what he looked like in the Bible. I mean, he's not just the baby born in the manger. He's the one who did the creating. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus alone is able to make sense of why the universe moves us the way it does. Because he made it for his glory and our joy. See, it's not just deism that some God out there set everything out and then let it go. It's that every moment from now to now to now to when you open up that gift you don't want tomorrow till then, the only reason that creation keeps on existing is being sustained and held together by Jesus, who on Christmas came as a baby in this manger. What you also have to understand is that same burden of sin which destroyed the universe, we carry that around inside of us. We have all gone our own way. When it comes down to what God wants and what we want, we always go the way that we want. It's like, I don't need to listen to you. I don't understand. I don't like this. We've all dug a pit we cannot get ourselves out of. And yet Jesus is the crucified God, the sin sacrifice. And the question becomes really personal at Christmas, and a lot of people don't understand this. Because it's not just do you know about Jesus or do you find Christmas inspirational or do you find Jesus inspirational. The question at Christmas is and always has been, are you ready to meet him? That's the question. Are you willing to humbly confess your sin and surrender yourself to Jesus and live in the gift of grace through Jesus? Through his death on the cross and his ultimate resurrection, not just to put creation together, but put to you back together again. That's Christmas. I mean, it's true that God is wholly other than man. He is so different, he is so far out that he is other. But that's only half of who God is. God is other because he's not me and he is not you. 
but he knows us so deeply and personally, better than we know ourselves. See, the problem with religion is it doesn't know what to do with the God that is this ginormous and yet this personal. So what we do is we try and create a God, and he sits out there in heaven, and we throw some rituals his way. You know, we chop off heads. We bow to Mecca five times a day. We wear holy underwear. We go door to door. We create a God that rides around in a sleigh, pulled by a magic reindeer, that gives us all the gifts that we just want. We create a God that looks just like us. But our God, the Bible says, is other. And he made us. He has power over us. And he gives us not what we want. He gives us what we need. He is personal and closest, knows us better than we know ourselves. This is why Jesus, as he grows up from a baby in a manger, tells us in John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus takes the name of God, the God who always was, the God who always will be, and says, I am him. Jesus makes these I am statements more than half a dozen times in the scriptures. Into our cacophony of lostness, God brings a reminder of who he has always been with Christmas. Michael Card sings this really old song that's called The Final Word. And he says these words, And so the light became alive, and manna became man. Eternity stepped into time so we can understand. Well, what do we understand? That we are not alone. That time and space and matter sit under loving God's control, and he loves us. He knows us. He has come to rescue us. And it is still about God's gravity, his glory, his weight. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal confines himself to time to come into our broken world and save us. See, space and time all have to deal with distance, how far these things are apart from each other. When we think about the vastness of the universe, it does not even compare with how far our sin is separated from a good and holy and loving God. And yet God himself traverses that distance that is greater than the stars and greater than time to bring intimacy to his people again. I mean, that is the beauty of Christmas. Every year when we come to Christmas Eve services, we always have this debate. Are we going to put communion out or not? And it always wins out that, yes, we are going to put communion out for people who want to take communion. We, we don't pass communion. It's a response to what Jesus has done. And so it's a reminder, like you break that cracker because it reminds you that, you know, Jesus just wasn't born in a manger. He grew up and died for everything that separated us from each other and us from him. And so you break that cracker like his body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It represents his blood that was shed for you. And me. This gift that starts with our understanding of Christmas comes to fruition at Easter. They go hand in hand. In Ezekiel 2.9, the prophet says this, Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. You know whose hand that is? It's the hand of God. I mean, this is the truth, that God's hand is stretched out to all of us. That same hand that clung to his mother's breast in the manger is the same hand that grabbed Peter as he began to sink when he tried to walk on water. Is the same hand that was nailed to the cross. Is the same hand that removed the stone from the tomb when he rose from the dead. Is that same hand that stretched across the universe. That hand is stretched out to us. That's the point of Christmas right there. Now, tonight, we gave all of you a sand timer, or most of you. Maybe you didn't get one because didn't trust you. I don't know. You know. But we gave most of you a sand timer. And that's to remind you how fast time goes by. We are always moving forward. Only Jesus can redeem the past. Only he can make sense of our futures and give us a purpose and a reason for why we do what we do. We cannot control moment to moment to moment. 
But Jesus is in control of it all. And in Christmas, he steps into time to save all of us. And that is the greatest gift we'll ever know. And so tomorrow, I would encourage you at some point, flip that sand timer over. It's only going to take about two and a half, three minutes, depending on how good yours is. (laughs) It may take an hour. We don't know, you know. It's not moving, whatever. So, you know, and it'll kind of run out by the time it gets to the end. I mean, realize, that's a gift. God has just welcomed you to his future, and he is in control of it. And so on behalf of Jesus coming in the flesh of a baby in a manger, I say to you, Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for being a God who loves us more than we can ever comprehend. Father, when we look out at the vastness of the universe in which our tiny little planet sits, we can feel so small and insignificant. And yet in one sense, that's true. We are very small. And yet our lives don't pass unnoticed by you. You know us so well. You know the number of hairs on our head. And I know it's easier to count some people's than others. But yet you are the God who knows us more intimately and deeply than we know ourselves. And you traverse all the distance that stands between us and you to bring us into relationship again. And so we thank you for the great, great joy that you bring to us when we fully understand Christmas. You have brought hope and peace again to a lost and broken people. And so we thank you as our great God for giving us Christmas. Amen.